0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today, as always, is our namesake, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks
1: for joining us. That's a pleasure, as always.
0: Today's episode is entitled The Ethics of the Odyssey. And in a work in which there is so much bloodshed, perhaps it, it might be interesting to talk about ethics in a, in our modern sense, especially as Christians. But it's important that Christians who read Homer understand, in their enjoyment of the story, what what is it that makes the, the behavior of the characters puzzling. Achilles is a great hero, but he also seems self-centered, egomaniacal. And Odysseus is a pirate, robber, and above all, a liar. Is he really a role model for young Christians, or more a role model for people who want to work at Goldman Sachs?
1: Yes, well, it's uh, it's a difficult question to answer, and you know, having taught the Odyssey both uh, to Greek students and to uh, and to uh, you know, lectured on it from publicly and, and taught it to college students and high school students, this is a, this is something which. Uh, people have great trouble with, and especially the more Christian they are, the more they have trouble uh, with the the character, particularly of Odysseus. But we can't really answer uh, the question of what kind of a role model is Odysseus without looking at the the bigger picture, the ethical universe in the Homeric world, and we have to get some context by looking at other moral systems of uh, not only of pre-modern societies, uh, so you know, which you'd find in uh, you know, uh, Central Africa or Latin America, or but also uh, ancient and medieval societies. So that, that um, to to understand you know what how, what 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 sort of a person Odysseus is in, in the ethical context of early Greece, we we have to we have to sort of get our bearings.
0: So when you say get our bearings. Are you saying that right is not always right and and wrongs not always wrong? That there aren't universal standards and principles that some
1: people attribute to natural law? Well, I'm not saying exactly that, though I would throw in a side comment that the this notion that we should treat everyone basically the same in in uh, in human life, everyone, every single individual, born, unborn, my best friend, or somebody living around. Uh, on the other end of the of the world, that they're all individuals who bear ethical rights and ethical duties. This is not really a Christian concept, uh, although it is often trotted out in in various modern catechisms and works of theology. This is the this is the belief. This is the argument used in the Enlightenment. This is typical of Locke and Voltaire and Rousseau. It, it is not especially Christian. And by the way, this, this argument that I'm making inc- also includes a lot of what is falsely called natural law theory today. Because most natural law theory since the 19th century, and it includes virtually all Catholic natural law theory of the 20th century, is really derived from a German idealist tradition. It's Hegelian it is not Aristotelian. Aristotelian, natural right, natural law, was based on the way human beings have been created. It's the way we are. Whereas the modern theories are all based on, abst- it's like geometry, where you have certain axiomatic principles and then you deduce certain, certain conclusions from that. That, 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 is, that is alien to the scriptures, it's alien to the church fathers, and it's alien to the whole classical tradition of philosophy. So if we really want to learn something about the origins and development of human ethics then, rather than looking at these abstract manuals of moral theology uh, uh, in the modern world, I think the last great uh, Catholic Work of moral theology was probably uh, Saint Alfonso in the uh, in the 18th century, a genuinely great work in the in the classical tradition. But to to purge our minds of these abstractions about human rights, there's no better place to start than Homer. Well, imagine. That uh, we are uh, graduate students in Berkeley, California, and we've just left off burning some campus buildings to uh, <laughs> assert our free speech rights, so that we because we don't want to hear anybody who disagrees with us, and we're transported uh, to to Homeric Greece, that is, to the world in, uh, that uh, Homer describes or invents. We're immediately bewildered by one great difference between the world of Berkeley, or at least the world we pretend that it is Berkeley, and the Homeric world. In Homer's world, duties and rights are particular, and they derive from our relationship to other people, Uh, uh, whether we're children or parents, husbands or wives, companions or strangers, Greeks or non-Greeks. So this idea that, for example, all uh, Middle Eastern Muslims have the same right to live in the United States. And to practice a religion which is fundamentally not just antithetical, but hostile to the Christian religion, you know, this is, you know, a, an ancient Greek would have laughed at you. And in fact, he would have probably killed you. <laughs> the conventional relationship between children and parents in Homer's world is based on the respect which children are supposed to have for their parents and the love that parents have and the concern that they have in, ta- in taking care of their children. And this is, not a, this is not the same thing. I mean, the, 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 the parent's duties, the child's duty are, are, are quite different, as they, as they have been in all decent human societies. On the other hand, when, when two aliens meet, whether in, in, in one of their home countries or in an international setting, their relations are, uh, have to be defined very rapidly because the natural relationship is to be a state of war. You know, if a if a if a Greek meets a Phoenician on the island of Cyprus, they're probably going to fight or and rob and kill each other to rob and slave or kill the enemy alien is not immoral. And it's as it's not in, 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 in a war today or they can strike up a relationship or acknowledge a pre existing relationship, which in English we translate as guest friendship. The Greek word is xenia, a, a complex word because xenos is a stranger, an alien, but he's also a host or a guest. Uh, but he can also be a mercenary soldier. But xenia is this relationship: you come to my town and I'll take care of you. I come to your town and and you take care of me. So, so this uh, is
0: that that sort of relationship is what we saw in Oedipus at Colonus that he was under protection. Exactly. Of, of that. Ksenia is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay.
1: Ksenia, yeah. And so, in, um, in, in uh, for example, in the Iliad, there's one of those beautiful scenes. Uh, Diomedes and Glaucus meet each other, and, and they're about to go at it when uh, one of them, ma- Diomedes asks Glaucus, who are you? And Glaucus gives his famous answer, well, what does it matter? The generations of man are leaves that blow in the wind. In other words, a couple of generations, from now nobody's going to even know our name, so why, why bother? And then they find out that their like great grandfathers were guest friends. And so that means so they exchange the they go through a ritual exchange of gifts. uh, According to the rules, they reacknowledge the guest friendship of their families. And they say there are plenty of there are plenty of uh, Trojans I can kill. There are plenty of Greeks that you can kill. We will not meet in battle because it would be wrong. Uh, to to fight and kill such a person. It, this this notion of hospitality is very big in, in in medieval life and medieval reality. And if you you and, and, and literature, and if you read these stories in in uh, in uh, like Scottish ballads where uh, a, a man comes and asks for shelter and they give him food and drink and then only then do they find he's a hereditary enemy of the family. And then but they can't do anything about it because he's already been accepted as a guest friend. So it's not just a Greek thing in, in a in a state of society where strangers tend to be enemies. It is a way of having a state of peace and friendship with a, with a stranger. And and in fact, I would argue and I am arguing in the book I'm finishing now that this this form of guest, this ritualized friendship this rit- which is a kind of ritualized uh, kinship which is the basis of forming larger and larger social units like city-states and and, uh, countries. So Odysseus apparently criminal acts against, for example, the Cyclops, Polyphemus. They go in there and they they, uh, eat and drink his food uh, would be a gross violation of guest friendship toward an alien. But after all, you can't have guest friendship with Polyphemus. He's a savage cannibal. Incapable of forming a civilized attachment of that type. By the way, he's also polygamous, which uh, Homer seems to find amusing. Uh, the, and uh, and le- later, uh, that is they, because it's referred to their, 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 the Cyclopes have wives. At least that's my interpretation. At the other end of the scale for Odysseus, from these various strangers he meets and is immediately going to war with and robbing and killing, but there are relations with, for example, the people of Phaeacia on the island of uh King, uh, Al- uh King Alcinous and his uh, lovely wife and daughter. They, they treat him as a guest friend, a Xenos, Partly um, out of respect for his obvious nobility, so he is. But because they say they, they acknowledge he's a he's a, a, a noble aristocrat, they therefore make him a friend, and he has obligations to them.
0: Well, there's two directions we can go here, Doctor. I mean, obviously, I'm interested to know how how does he know he's in uh, how do they know he's an aristocrat? But but essentially, you're saying this only works in, in a universe in which there is a, a clear definition of, of hierarchy. That there are, there are people that, that occupy different roles that are superior, that are inferiors. Where you where you have someone like Polyphemus being inferior.
1: Yes, and uh, and and Polyphemus is, is, you know, the fact that he eats he eats human flesh shows that he's really sort of outside the pale of civilization. Um, The the the, uh, king Alcinous and his wife understand that uh, Odysseus is noble because they can look at him uh, by sight. In the Homeric world, heroes are descended partially from the gods. They have divine blood, like the Roman patricians, for example, who made the same claim. They're they're uh, stereotypically. They're tall. They're handsome they 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 blonde blondish red hair as up, they've got light skin as opposed to they're not, they're not dark like other mediterranean peoples they're brave and they're honorable the lower classes while they uh, can be capable of uh, a certain sense of loyalty and decent behavior uh, they're different i mean they're not they're not good looking for example and they, they don't they don't usually exhibit the kind of uh, bravery and nobility which uh, we expect of a Homeric hero. In, in the Iliad, there's the lower class. Well, there's one lower class character, Thersites, and he he's a democrat. He starts saying, "You big shot kings, you get everything. You tell us what to do. Why why should that be?" Now, in a modern novel, of course, he'd be the hero. Whereas, uh, of course, in in uh, in a Homeric epic, Odysseus beats him with a stick. And all the uh, soldiers say, oh, you've done many fine things, Odysseus. This is the best thing you've ever done. That is beating this lower class demagogue who presumes to uh, be our equal. So um, now there's a famous theory that goes back to uh, the Germans. And I think it's certainly true. I don't know. I think Nietzsche took it up from maybe from Erwin Oda or one of his teachers But that is that Greek moral terms, terms like uh, kalos and agathos, refer originally to class status. So that is good words which mean good and beautiful and true are indications that you're an upper class person. So that um, so that uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody like Achilles or Diomedes walks in the room. Well, you could tell by their inherited good looks that uh, they're members of the nobility. This is sort of – this is, a, I think, a universal tendency. Everybody loves good-looking people, and, but it's very strong in, in traditional cultures like the, the, uh, like in the Sanskrit epics where I noticed that uh, when I was reading – trying to learn Sanskrit many, many years ago, these people the, – the heroes were tall and, in fact, uh, if, if they walked into a room – the, the doorway rose up uh, uh, so that they didn't have to uh, stoop down. So essentially, you can tell – you should be able to tell the nobility of somebody by looking at them, especially if you too have those those qualities.
0: Well, that, that works out when, when things are, are normal, Dr. Fleming. But what happens when you're a beggar trying to get back into your palace?
1: yeah well, that's exactly the point here, uh, and we'll talk about this from various directions in the course of our conversation, but th- but that is the point that uh, that Odysseus is now a bum. Uh, it, he hasn't yet disguised himself as a beggar, but you know, he washes up on shore. He's, he's a victim, he's shipwrecked, he has no clothes on, he's, he's, uh, he's dirty, he's foul, he's, you know he's unkempt. And yet, you know, when, when, he, when he lands, you know, all the little girls who are out washing the clothes, all the little girls but one, run away because they're terrified of, of this, this naked stranger. But the girl who doesn't run away is the princess, now Sika, who is, of course, beautiful, intelligent, and accomplished. And uh, she's looking for a husband. And when she sees Odysseus, who is literally old enough to be her father, she knows this man. This could be it because of the nobi- his obvious nobility, his strength, his courage, his sincerity. I mean, you can you it, it, you, you can tell by looking at him. But um, the this is uh, this this becomes very difficult for most people. You know, for us, we think, well, this guy's a bum. He's a derelict. He can't possibly uh, display these, uh, these noble qualities. And, uh, and so the question is raised immediately uh, throughout through, – it's raised throughout the odyssey. To what extent is this true, that people who are lucky and, and good-looking and, 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 and have a noble appearance and they're wearing nice clothes, does that mean they're good people? And if you fall on hard fortune, doesn't mean you're a bad person. And so we have several characters like the prophet Theoclymenus, who we uh, Telemachus meets, who had uh, who is the, the victim of misfortune, or the noble swineherd Eumaeus, who is you know tending the pigs, but he's but he's of royal blood, and his has a decent mind. So the in the in the Iliad, these characters I think are almost inconceivable. Because nobility, is, nobility of character is a function of uh, your family tree. Whereas in the Odyssey, uh, the question is raised, is, are, are, is, are these class distinctions universal? Does, it, does everybody who belongs to the upper class, is he noble? And of course, we have a, a discussion at several points of Aegisthus, the cousin of Agamemnon, who murders him and seduces his wife. So, uh, so 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 this this is one of the fundamental moral dilemmas uh, being raised by the Odyssey. that is this outward appearance and good breeding, is that the, the same thing as human virtue? And the answer in the Odyssey is probably not.
0: I want to go back to the, the guest friendship, uh, the story that you told about uh, Glaucon and, and Diomedes. The, we have several, ish, we have several uh, points of intersection for Odysseus that he has to deal with. So we have the Phaeacians uh, who, who make a guest friend of, of
1: Odysseus. What does he owe them? Well, it's uh, again this, these these relationships are formal and ritualized, and they usually involve the giving of gifts and the the swearing of promises. And this is not just in the Homeric world, but down down to fairly late in the in the Greek world, and uh, and it, it 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 persists throughout the Greek tradition, um, and it's often passed on. To, uh, to the children. It's not, you know, three or four generations later, the bond may be uh, ignored, but it can be re-acknowledged. When, uh, when Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, goes to see Nestor and Menelaus, they, because he is the son of a guest friend, they treat him properly. So uh, when you go to, if you're staying with a host who's a, an acknowledged guest friend, well, you don't rob him, you don't insult him, you don't... You Don't misbehave at the dinner table. And you certainly don't run away with his treasure and his wife, which is what uh, Paris, the Trojan prince, did when he was visiting Menelaus. This is why Paris is one of the great sinners of Greek literature and Greek mythology, because he was taken in as a friend and then betrayed the host. And that's the whole Trojan War. It's not simply... Uh, that they're ang- that uh, Menelaus is angry that his wife got taken from him, but it's the but Zeus is angry not over the not because it's a wife but because of the violation of the rules of hospitality which he Zeus has made and presides over
0: well, what about the the suitors? This is a, a strange one, but are they guest friends?
1: Well, you know, in a way, they are in a way they're not. Some of them some of them certainly are related to people who had been treated that way by the family uh, of uh, Odysseus, his father, his wife, and her family. They are guests of his house they're they're staying there, and they're guests of his wife and son, whether invited or not. They probably don't have the formal relationship but they are nonetheless bound by the, by the normal rules of Greek hospitality. But what do they do? They eat and drink the, uh, Telemachus and his mother out of house and home. They bully the mother trying to make her marry one of them. They plot to kill the son. These, this, is exa- this is just as bad behavior uh, as the behavior of Aegisthus, the cousin of Agamemnon, who is held up constantly in the work as the negative example. What you don't want to be like is Aegisthus. So when Odysseus returns, he takes, of course, at, in, in one of the greatest scenes in the literature, he takes a terrible revenge. He, he kills all of them. And even the comparatively nice uh, suitor, like Eurymachus, uh, is, uh, cannot escape. They all they are all killed, and so for the uh, for the for the Greek reader for the ancient reader, I think they they thought this was uh, this this was an act of justice. But it does
0: strike uh, even I would. I'm trying to obviously I'm a modern Doctor Fleming, so I'm trying to think back to being an ancient reader, and I'm thinking about vengeance and things that we've talked about, uh, uh, the plays that we've discussed, and uh the or- the Orstaya, for example you would to, to put it analogously it would not just be killing the evil doers but killing everyone you know uh, and we saw some of that you know a, a random maid was killed but uh, killing everyone in the household sort uh, would, yeah. would be analogous so uh, for a modern it seems uh, I, I i hesitate to use the term but almost like vi- <laughs> vid- video game violence Yes. Yeah. This, this level yeah. of well everybody's going to get
1: killed and you're right it is it is a bit shocking The um, one has to remember now. Homer does prepare us for this. For example, the maids mistreat uh, not only they're sleeping with the suitors, so they, which is not something they're supposed to do. They (laughs) aid they aid the suitors in their plots against Penelope and uh, and her son Telemachus, and when Odysseus comes. They treat this stranger badly. I mean they, they you know they're, they're they are very rude and unpleasant to him. Even the best of the suitors Eurymachus throw what is it he, he throws a, a, a table or chair at Odysseus whom he thinks is a miserable beggar. Now this this shows bad character in every picking on the lower classes be, just because they, they've met with misfortune. Is a, is is a is a sign of an immoral bad person. Now uh, it's a, it's all right uh, being. It's sort of like you get executed for spitting on the sidewalk. Uh, and the answer is, considering they're, they're, that they're all part of a criminal conspiracy against the the king. Uh, they they all share in the guilt and they they all uh, are killed. Now this is this is what happens in a vengeance-based society, whether it's a Greek society or an Anglo-Saxon society, or to the children of Israel in the in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's obviously a social and moral problem, even in Aeschylus' Astia And it takes in in both in both in the Aristai and here, Athena tries to resolve the 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 problem because you know once once Odysseus has killed all the suitors they they have they have relatives who now have to get blood revenge on odysseus for for doing this and uh it, and it, it, it's an, it could be an endless cycle of violence in this case uh athena's attempt to to resolve the question is uh, backed up by a thunderbolt which land which hits strikes at her feet. That is it's the warning from Zeus himself that this is this is over that uh, Odysseus has made his point. Vengeance, uh, I would re- re- remind our readers, vengeance is not wrong. And this is, this is one of the worst pollutions of modern ethical discourse and of all talk about, you know, crime and punishment, well, that's just revenge. Of course it's just revenge. Vengeance is vindication, the, the, the righting of a wrong and vindication is a positive good. It is divinely commanded. Vindication and vengeance are not opposed to justice. They're the foundation of justice. And in the Old Testament, you know, we're told of course over and over, vengeance is mine saith the Lord I shall repay. And people misinterpret that to mean something like, well that means uh vengeance is wrong. You you can't do it. No, no, obviously the creator of the universe is not is not walking the streets of every little village in the world saying, "Okay, uh you you committed a uh, uh, wrong." You're, you're going to have to pay, I'm going to punish you but rather we know uh, we're told explicitly by Saint Paul that this power is entrusted to the rulers. Now it could be entrusted to the king of Israel it could be entrusted to the to the Roman Empire emperor which 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 is Paul's argument in uh, the Epistle to the Romans or it could be entrusted in the in before there's a kingdom of Israel there are tribal leaders or in the in the earliest parts of the Old Testament, the, the it is it is the the kinfolk the next of kin the the head of the family they are entrusted with not the right but the duty to seek the blood of from from uh, whoever has murdered a member of our family this this is the root of all of all the justice for murder it's not to protect society from a future killer many people who kill aren't going to kill again they just want to do it once the point is that they have to pay for their crime and in an orderly society in a civilized society of course we have we have a system of justice which is supposed to do this if that system of justice breaks down and doesn't doesn't execute killers then presumably the right is the this right this duty Of of seeking vengeance is transferred from the state to back to the kindred. Well, and I think again, this show is called
0: Christianity and Classical Culture, so I think a lot of times Christians may recoil a bit, especially if they're getting into an argument with a pagan or an agnostic, and they say, well, you know, in the Bible, it says, you know, there was all this killing in the Old Testament. How do you feel about that? And, And Christians, and I'm been guilty of this i've said it myself well that's the old testament dot 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 with this implication that well we also have this other testament that contextualizes that violence right if you you, trying to understand the old testament without the new testament i think is is quite a task because we weren't we weren't jews who existed before our lord so when you say that vengeance is not wrong I think there's that immediate hesitation in Christians where that question is raised like, well, I guess that's true because we see it. And our Lord doesn't say vengeance is wrong. He says vengeance is mine.
1: <laughs> that's right. How could it be wrong if it, if it belongs to the, uh, to, the, to the creator and to his instruments on earth? It's clearly, you know, vengeance, vengeance is – and, of course, the word like yeah, vendetta – for example, which is comes from the Latin word for vengeance. Vendetta is practically the only word in medieval Italian. It's Dante's only word for justice. It it, it just means when, if I kill, if I, if I commit first degree murder, I have to pay for that. And that, that is vengeance, whether it's the family who kills me, which would have happened by the way, in Dante's time, whether it's the family that has that power, or it is the, the, the government of Florence, or a government of Italy, what the ruler has the sword, and the ruler in a, in a more developed civilized society, such as say eighteenth century England, the, the ruler is the king and his ministers, and you can't just go around saying, well, that person did me wrong, I'm, I'm going to get revenge. It's the Christian position is quite is, is is actually very solid, reasonable position. Whoever has the whoever has been given the authority. That is the only person that, that that can take vengeance, but you know we're getting into a position now where murderer after murderer is either set loose or given a light sentence, and the question then has to be, do does the does the does the ruler really hold the sword anymore, and who is the ruler? It, it, it's be, and and at that point we have to look at begin to look at systems of law and justice that antedate the modern state, because the state, you know, the, the definition of the state is it holds a monopoly on violence. But if the state doesn't exercise this monopoly, then whether we like it or not, whether we think it's a good idea or not, people will, as they did say in the Old West, people will take uh, justice back into their hands and, uh, and, and, and accomplish it themselves. This is why uh, when, when, when the rulers of this world let down their subjects by failing to protect them, by failing to defend their borders, by failing to do, do, defend them in battle, by failing to punish criminals. Then those those rulers are discredited and lose and lose their authority, and and horrible things happen. I mean, we're go- we're going to see uh, if if something isn't done on all these fronts, you're you're going to see as we're already seeing glimmers. A return to lynch law, a return to blood revenge, a, a return to, uh, to 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 vigilante justice. There's there's there. It, it, nature abhors a vacuum, and when there's a, a justice vacuum, then human nature will reassert itself and will reassume the ancient power of revenge. It's a, and it will be a terrible thing, and the, and but the blood is on the heads of people like the previous president of the United States and the the various state legislatures and federal judges who have made it impossible to to secure peace and justice for the American people.
0: I I suppose I'm thinking of it somewhat as a flood theme, Dr. Fleming, that when we get to Ithaca, it's in disorder, right? It's nature nature and society are showing the disorder because of an absentee king and – perhaps only a very strong act you can't there's no gradualism involved in this restoration it has to be sudden and dramatic
1: that's absolutely right it, it's also literally, it's extremely satisfying <laughs> i think i read the odyssey when i was 10 or 11 years old and uh, i have to say i've I've rarely been so thrilled as by the conc- by any the conclusion of any work of literature as by the Odyssey and to this day I can't read it in Greek or English without without feeling yes you know the the whole <laughs> drawn out scene of of testing the bow and setting up the setting up the, the 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 target which is a string of axe heads with this little hollow circle at the top and sh- And only Odysseus can even draw the bow, much less shoot it through, shoot the arrow through. And then the revelation, this is who I really am, not the bum you've been spitting on and sneering at. But now he's revealed to be, you know, one of the greatest heroes uh, in the Greek world and uh, and uh, (laughs) cleans up the town rather handily, very quickly. I don't think there's a there's a scene in a Western movie is satisfying.
0: Well, I mean, it's just not satisfying to have a bunch of executive orders get uh, published, right? You, you gotta,
1: you gotta, exactly. you gotta
0: kill a few people, right? Show people who's boss. Uh, so, uh, okay, we'll concede. Odysseus is brave. His robbing and his killing—they're directed against enemies or aliens or one-eyed creatures who are polygamous. Uh, what about what about the lying part of it? This is this is definitely not a sign of good character. This isn't something that Doctor Fleming taught his children.
1: No, it's certainly not, although it's very hard to – if there's one thing that's hard to, get to to, cause children to cease and desist from, <laughs> it's it's uh, lying. Uh, now, later Greeks, uh, by the way, agree with, with our modern sensibility on this. Uh, there was a feeling that Odysseus is too wily to be noble, and there is the story of the hoplon crisis, the judgment of arms after uh, Achilles dies uh they dis- they the 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 greeks at troy decide they have to award his arms which after all were made by uh, hephaestus they're divinely produced they'll be given to uh the most the second most noble of the greeks and uh the the i think diomedes bows out but and it comes down to uh ajax who is a large, powerful, heroic, slightly dumb, old fashioned warrior and Odysseus, who is also heroic and brave and strong, but uh, not as perhaps as physically powerful as Ajax, but wily and duplicitous. And the the, uh, the arms are given to uh, uh, Odysseus rather than to Achilles' cousin, Ajax. Uh, Sophocles, great play, the Ajax. Ajax goes mad and is going to kill all the Greeks, but instead Athena causes a delusion to fall upon him and he slaughters a bunch of uh, livestock instead. And, uh, but he, he, his nobility is in stark contrast with the subtlety and, uh, and, and cleverness of Odysseus. Pindar uses him the same way. Uh, this 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 conflict. Although perhaps in Pindar's case, the fact that he was being paid by people who claimed to be descended from Ajax may have somewhat influenced it. But still, we see this pattern of peep of and, uh, of playwrights and essayists and commentators using Odysseus as the as a model for how a hero should not behave because he's a liar. Now. Odysseus, again, to, to, with his parallel with his robbing and stealing, he does lie to enemies and to alien strangers or, you know, to people who are potential enemies. However, uh, when uh, when he knows he's among friends, then the, his heroic code, which is the code of Achilles, who say it says, I hate a lie uh, worse than the gates of hell. And so on Phaeacia, he begins by uh, Telling uh, what W. S. Gilbert would call a terrible story about his uh, about his background. In fact, he he lies when he meets Athena on in several occasions. But once he's treated kindly and received as a guest friend, he then, this is in fact how we know the whole backstory of uh, of Odysseus wandering because he tells he tells uh, King Alcinous and the Phaeacians the true story. When he's taken back to Ithaca although he will uh, have to, uh, he will have to keep up his lying, he's going to have to live by uh, a different code. and Athena tells him as such, you know, the time for some of your shenanigans is over, uh, you're going to have to stand up and, and, and take what, what belongs to you. So the, uh, so again, we can, we can, I think distinguish between those people to whom he owes the truth as a hero and those people, that he doesn't owe the truth to. And those, the, the people he does not owe truth to are his social inferiors, his uh, uh, enemies, and people who might turn out to be enemies. And in, in the case of the suitors, he absolutely has to keep, it's sort of the, like the messianic secret in the Gospels, don't tell anybody who I am. And uh, it's, it's a little disconcerting to us but it's it's you know it's part of the story of the of of the the the, the, the rescuer the, sa- the the savior who comes in disguise.
0: So again, this is Christianity in classical culture. So we're always going to have to learn, return to how do we how do we connect these two universes? You, you've shown us so far that we there is some kind of
1: moral code, but it doesn't stretch very far no that's uh that's certainly uh true it does not it we um the the co- the code is pres- is a code of particular duties you know when jefferson made up his own bible and eliminated miracles he also says in a letter that he he wanted to eliminate what he called the wretched depravity of particular duties. In other words, uh, which is, and the wretched depravity of particular duties is is d- dominant. For example, in the Old Testament, where treatment of aliens as a, uh, uh, is somewhat different from uh, strangers who come to stay with you, but treatment of both is different from treatment of a fellow Jew. Uh, treatment of kinsmen is different from treatment of others, and you know it's not just in the in the Talmudic writings, but it's in the Torah itself that uh, prohibitions on adultery don't extend to the wives of Gentiles. So the the Old Testament is a is a wonderful texture of casuistic uh, rules, which are case by case that uh, you don't owe the same things to everybody, and that's certainly uh, the True in the Greek world, our problem is uh, we have gone in the opposite direction and we pretend that these distinctions uh, don't exist. That was Jefferson's problem. Uh, He he thought that uh, duties and obligations were universal, although, by the way, he never acted that way. Jefferson always preferred his kinsmen to anybody else, spent huge amounts of time taking care of his nephews and various... Uh, for, uh, distant family relatives, constantly giving them advice and helping them in their careers, and of course, he loved Virginia more than any place else. And when he refers to his country, he does not mean the United States; he means Virginia. So, I think for a Christian, what we want to do is uh, find the 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 via media between on the one hand a totally particularistic uh, set of ethical rules which says I don't have to treat strangers as if they were human beings. That, that is something which uh, the Greeks, of course, uh, had, were the first to teach us that, that uh, we're, all, we're all humans and in this game together. Um, And and as opposed to the other end of the spectrum, which is that we're all just like uh, different pool balls without numbers and we just interact uh, according to the laws of physics and none of us has any particular responsibility. At the beginning of the Odyssey, um, to go back to your question about what we can learn. The gods discuss the age-old problem later raised most famously in the book of Job. Why do the good suffer? There was a, even a famous uh, rabbinical book about uh, 25 years ago, why, why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, I remember Chris Coffin and I said, somebody should write a book about a more serious problem to, for most of us. Why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> you know? Why why did Ted Turner get so rich? You know how why it it doesn't seem right. Um Homer's answer will probably not satisfy us, that is because that is the answer he's trying to uh he's trying to come up with in the Odyssey. At the beginning of the poem, Zeus complains that uh men like Aegisthus we warned against doing evil, that is killing the king, his cousin, and uh, taking his wife. Uh, but they persist. And then they want to blame the gods for the consequences of what they, of what they themselves have done. And so uh, in, the Homeric, in, in, in the Homeric morality in the Odyssey is that we are responsible to a large extent for our own outcomes. We're, we're personally responsible for the things we've done. And this comes out rather beautifully uh, when the gods decide, well, even though Poseidon hates Odysseus because Polyphemus is the son of Poseidon, uh, that, uh, well, the sea god is away visiting the Ethiopians and you know, they're, they're feasting him, so, so while he's away, they can, they can sneak some help to Odysseus. And instead of simply sending Hermes to say, climb on my back, boy, and uh, I'll take you where you want to go. Instead, Hermes goes and tells Calypso, well, you've got to let him go. And she provides him with an axe. And with the axe, Odysseus builds himself a kind of raft, a kind of boat by which he can leave the island. In other words, even when the gods decide they're going to help us, it's up to us. We have to to, uh, show a little initiative. I once had. Uh, I was once teaching uh, New Testament Greek, first-year Greek, and it was mostly to Christian students, and there were a bunch of them were in a, a pseudo-Christian cult called The Way, and so they were doing pretty badly because in The Way, they were taught that Greek words only had one meaning. You know, even the word for and in Greek, chi, has about, <laughs> has about four or five basic meanings, and um, so they were they were all so going into the final exam with with failing grades or very low D's. And so I said uh, when they came in, I said, well, I hope you all study because I don't want to have to fail anybody. And they said, oh, we spent the night praying. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I think does don't you think your God wants you to actually do your duty and study your lessons you know, is that, you know, and of course, they all they all got things like 10 and 20 on on the exam uh, because they believe that every it, they were like Muslims. Muslims believe everything's in the hand of Allah. So if you fire a gun off into a crowd and it kills somebody, it's not your fault because Allah willed that bullet to mm. uh, to kill somebody. And there's a strain. I'll, Really, classical Calvinism says there are no intermediate uh, causes. All, the ultimate cause of everything is God, and so God causes evil. God causes ch- little children to be raped and murdered. This is obscene, but it is what some people believe. And the uh, the Odyssey is a real anecdote. Uh, a really anecdote uh, to that. And secondly, uh, the the Odyssey challenges. The Greek conventional assumption that you see in the Iliad and that you see everywhere, really. People who, go, people who adore film stars, well, they're so handsome, they must be a good role model, right? Or so-and-so throws a good football, so he must be a good model for my children. Or so-and-so is a pop idol, so I should base my life on that. We, we think we've escaped this? No. 95% of humanity has never escaped this. And the, the, the Greek, of course, version is that upper-class people who are not only good-looking and brave, but they also have to be virtuous. Odysseus returns to his home on Ithaca uh, and if, if, if I may uh, misappropriate a scriptural uh, phrase, despised, rejected, and acquainted with grief. He is very much uh, the, the suffering servant uh, that we're told uh, in uh, Isaiah to expect when the Savior comes the suitors mistreatment of him is not just an outrage because he really because you know we know he's really the king he's really the hero and it's wrong for uh, a king and hero to be be mistreated in this way but we also know he's a human being and so the idea that you should uh, you're free because you're upper class you're free to mistreat the lower orders as if they were animals this is very strongly challenged here. Misfortune can come to anyone, the, the, this book is telling us, as in fact it has come to the noble swineherd. You know, Eumus is called Dios, a word which is, has the word God in it for the Greeks. It's div- you're divine. And uh, he, because he comes from a royal family, but he's had to be a slave all of his life because of misfortune. It's not his fault. And so you have to be able to look into a beggar uh, or a slave and see that there is a human being there and that, you know, he is made, uh, the Greeks knew that, the, that mankind was made in the image of God. And it is one, it is one of the things that, uh, that you know, St. Paul uses, you know, when he says, you know, one are the race of gods and men, which is a, a line of, uh, of Pindar, this notion that that we are not utterly despicable as for example we are in the the Islamic understanding of human nature so we these are these are wonderful lessons to learn this this vitally important lesson of of the Odyssey runs deeper and deeper through the Greek experience through their literature and philosophy Uh, not just in literary works but in their in their uh, philosophy and in their uh, in their ethical understanding of the world you see it in in the tragedies of Sophocles and Euripides you see it in Virgil's uh, Aeneid which is something uh, I think we should talk about later what i'm what the theme I'm talking about is human compassion i 'm I'm not talking about the, 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 the politics of compassion by which I steal your money and give it to somebody else who will then obey, then vote for me when I run for office. I'm talking about the compassion of you. you you've only got a hundred dollars in your pocket, but there's somebody who's starving, and you give him ten. I, I'm talking about treating other people as as fellow human beings, uh, it, it living, uh, walking through uh, this valley of tears. And this is something which the Greeks and Romans taught, and they thought, they thought that, in fact, the Jews were deficient because they made a distinction between Gentiles and Jews, and the Greeks thought, well, you know, obviously Greeks are better than Romans, and Greeks and Romans together are better than anybody else, but still, those people are human, and you, and you have to take that into account. The only uh, parallel for this are, in fact, in the great Hebrew prophets whom, unfortunately, their, their, many of their readers didn't, didn't follow the advice, but you get this in, in the stories of Job and Jonah. It turns out Job the, the Job is the most just man in the Old Testament, but he's not a Jew. Jonah, the, the, who is a Jew, doesn't want to save the, the people of Nineveh from their sins because they're, they're not Jewish, so let them die, let them perish let them let them let them waller wallow in their squ- the squalor of their sinfulness and he's angry he's angry that the lord tells him he's got to he's got to preach the, to them repentance now the, these these great prophetic works which which foreshadow the christian teaching but they're paralleled and more, much more systematically in in greek and roman thought and this 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 ability, this insistence about seeing beyond the surface of what people wear, or if they're good-looking, or if they're rich, something that we seem to ignore completely today in our own culture. This, this really, this, this deep compassion for our fellow human beings, this, this is a great gift of the Greeks, and it starts here with this book, The Odyssey.
0: Well, I think that's an excellent place to end Dr. Fleming, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about we, that we didn't have a chance to talk about today before we close out our episode?
1: Well, they're about, uh, about 50 hours, but I think we'll, <laughs> we'll, sa- we'll save my further reflections on this great work for uh, other occasions. As
0: always, Dr. Fleming, thanks so much for your time.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.